Hello, Really True Fiction listeners. I want to let you know that episodes of The Liberal Soul will stop appearing on the Really True Fiction feed at the end of the summer. If you are enjoying The Liberal Soul, please subscribe to it on whatever app you use to get your podcasts so that you can continue to get notified of new episodes starting in September. Have a great day, and may the force be with you. The Liberal Soul is a podcast where I talk to people about their passions and their interests. I'll relay some of my own, as well as discuss works and thinkers important to the history of liberal philosophy. The Liberal Soul is meant to represent the people who are curious about the world and live to see themselves and others flourish within it. Please be aware that this podcast has some crude language and sometimes some bad words, but so it goes. today's episode, I am going to be discussing the book slash lecture series by the American philosopher William James on pragmatism. And the reason that I wanted to do pragmatism in a podcast called The Liberal Soul is that pragmatism is a philosophy that I have found quite useful. (laughs) And I say that tongue in cheek, because that's what the philosophy is, is a philosophy of how useful are things to us in practical real life. Pragmatism per se doesn't exactly line up flush with liberalism in the way I've just talked about liberalism, but I think it is a similar attitude in that pragmatism is interested in the practical effects of a belief system uh, in the real world. And one of the things I've been thinking about on this podcast is how the liberal soul asks about reality in a for in a forthcoming episode I'll be talking about the book The Constitution of Knowledge and in that book the author references the reality-based community. And what was really interesting about pragmatism is that it was a philosophy that was first introduced by thinkers like Charles Peirce and then uh, John Dewey and especially William James who is the guy that I'm talking about today and William James is one of my intellectual Prometheans. He is one of the greatest writers in philosophy and science, and he's one of the few people in the history of these disciplines that is both equally famous as a scientist. He was a psychologist as well as a philosopher. He probably most famously in philosophy gave us the idea of radical empiricism. And so... William James was, in fact, so talented, and pragmatism is considered the the true, or the first and maybe only real American philosophy in that it was developed by American thinkers. A lot of these ideas are older than them, than, than the United States. And, and in this book, James is doing a lecture series, so you're actually getting the text of his um, giving lectures or speeches, and he talks very much like what I imagine a podcaster would have talked in. 1906-1907, when this uh, lecture series came out. Again, I think the reason I wanted to do um, a, a, an intro to pragmatism, I mean, pragmatism is a quite detailed, thorough, and really intellectually rich philosophy that I am not an expert in, but I definitely remember 
feeling quite, I definitely resonated with a lot of the ideas that I came across in pragmatist writing. And I've really enjoyed reading other pragmatists, like I mentioned John Dewey, but also Richard Rorty. Richard Rorty's book, Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity, is such an interesting take on public life, private life distinctions. And I guess I, I'm kind of bridging pragmatism to a more central ethos of this podcast because of its insistence on the value or even the cash value, which is a term that James himself kind of coined. The cash value of an idea is how it pans out in real life, in practical life, in reality. And this is a different type of mentality than a lot of the previous philosophy in Western history that had focused more on what philosophers call metaphysics, a kind of belief in something capital T true beyond the sense realm of something like pure rationality or the platonic forms like I talked about in some previous episodes uh, where I did the book The Open Society and Its Enemies by Karl Popper. And so I wanted to just do a, a kind of intro episode on pragmatism because I think it's a really related idea to, I, I think you'll find a lot of liberals are also pragmatists. So it's not exactly the same thing, but there's a attitudinal relationship between the two that I think is interesting to explore. So I wanted to do an episode, maybe not necessarily a long episode, on an, a kind of introduction to pragmatism and... Uh, I think the best or at least the the most kind of like interesting pragmatist that I've ever come across is William James, who was uh, from, I think he was from Massachusetts, and he was kind of like writing most of his work between like 18, I think The Principles of Psychology was published in 1890, and I think he was writing up until about 1910, so he had a good 20, 20 uh, year period there. And he was the brother of Henry James, the, uh, I guess, novelist or at least short story writer. Uh, Henry James wrote The Turn of the Screw or The Turning of the Screw. I can't remember the uh, title exactly. So he came from a literary family. And William James is just such a great writer. And even if pragmatism itself doesn't capture you, if you are at all inclined into the areas of psychology and philosophy, I highly recommend reading William James because he is one of the most accessible and entertaining scholarly writers. He's kind of like, um, if there was a comparison to be made, I don't know, the kind of people I imagine him to have been like would have been like a kind of like maybe slightly less extroverted Neil deGrasse Tyson, but someone who can give a wry and mirthful smile because of a little joke made along the way or a little bit, a little jab made at someone's expense, but not too mean. He just seemed kind of jolly, happy-go-lucky, jolly and fun kind of guy. And so I'm really excited to talk about pragmatism. But just before I get into it, I just want to say a quick thank you to everyone who uh, listens to this podcast. It means a lot to me. You can subscribe on uh, all major podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, I think on Google as well. And if you do listen on Apple Podcasts, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and or a review. It's a good way to help new people find the show. You can send me an email at theliberalsoul87 at gmail.com if there's anything I talk about that's interesting to you. You can find the group on Facebook, The Liberal Soul. You can join and I post 
new episodes there when I release them. As well, you can follow the Liberal Soul on Twitter at LiberalSoul87. But of course, before I start, I need to uh, tell a joke. So there's uh, a chicken and an egg lying in a bed, and the chicken's looking uh, not so satisfied, and the egg's looking pretty satisfied. And the chicken turns to the egg and says, well, I guess we answered that question. <laughs> so um, there's a little anecdote that James gives in uh, lecture two of pragmatism that I think I want to read out to frame the idea, like kind of like the gist or uh, distillation of why this topic pragmatism captures my fancy for this type of podcast. So, let me read it out. James. Some years ago, being with a camping party in the mountains, I returned from a solitary ramble to find everyone engaged in a ferocious metaphysical dispute. The corpus of the dispute was a squirrel. A live squirrel is supposed to be clinging to one side of a tree trunk, while over against the tree's opposite side a human being was imagined to stand. This human witness tries to get sight of the squirrel by moving rapidly round the tree. But no matter how fast he goes, the squirrel moves as fast in the opposite direction and always keeps the tree between himself and the man, so that never a glimpse of him is caught. The resultant metaphysical problem now is this. Does the man go around the squirrel or not? He goes round the tree, sure enough, and the squirrel is on the tree. But does he go round the squirrel? In the unlimited leisure of the wilderness, discussion has been worn threadbare. <laughs> Parentheses. There's an example of James being wry and funny. Back to it, James. Everyone had taken sides and was obstinate, and the numbers on both sides were even. Each side, when I appeared, therefore appealed to me to make it a majority. Mindful of the scholastic adage that whenever you meet a contradiction, you must make a distinction, I immediately sought and found one as follows. Which party is right, I said, depends on what you practically mean by going round the squirrel. If you mean passing from north of him to the east, then to the south, then to the west, and then to the north again, obviously the man does go round for he occupies these successive positions. But if on the contrary you mean being first in front of him, then on the right of him, then behind him, and then on his left, and finally in front of him again, it is quite obvious that the man fails to go around him, for by the compensating movements the squirrel makes, he keeps his belly turned towards the man all the time, and his back turned away. Make the distinction, and there is no occasion for any further dispute. You are both right and both wrong, according as to you conceive of the verb to go around, in one practical fashion or the other. And this little anecdote, or I guess it didn't really happen, but James talks as if it did, is a good springboard into why I find pragmatism so useful and, and kind of, you know, refreshing, actually, because a lot of philosophy is these kind of like thought experiment problems and metaphysics, especially, that doesn't really have a solution. Another question you might ask that is similar to this is uh, that age-old one, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is around, does it make a sound? I guess the pragmatist in the style of William James would say, well, depends what you mean by make a sound. If you mean, does it elicit the cultural element of hearing that we associate with human beings? Then no, because there are no human beings there to hear it. But if you mean, does it create vibrations, physical vibrations that would make noise if uh, someone was there to hear it? Well, yes, it does. So it depends on what you mean by make a sound. And what I like about this maneuver is that it puts the onus back on the word user, not the word itself. 
And I think that this is a big point that certainly um, is throughout pragmatism in William James's work. And it reminds me a little bit of George Orwell is that what we mean by a word is much more important than the word itself. And then the further observation or the further insight from pragmatists and William James is that what we might consider the more right answer is which one has the most practical circumstances or benefits to it. James, whenever a dispute is serious, we ought to be able to show some practical difference that must follow from one side or the other being right. So what is the practical difference of a man going around a squirrel on a tree? Well, it's hard to say exactly. Or what is the practical difference of if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? Again, hard to say, other than uh, <laughs> what you mean by it. And I guess, I mean, it, it could be, <laughs> I'm imagining some sort of far-fetched scenario where the trees and the forests take our metaphysical thought problem seriously and fall down and don't make a sound and then fall on somebody and if only the person could hurt it but the tree didn't make a sound oh bad luck <laughs> too bad those trees listen to our thought experiments no of course not so i think probably more realistically a pragmatist would hear that kind of statement like um if a tree falls in the forest does it make a sound probably like the pragmatic answer would be why does it matter <laughs> and this is where i feel like pragmatism is aligned with liberalism. What are the practical, real-world consequences from believing in this or that? And in that sense, it's kind of like, this is something I've come across a few times in my philosophical thinking, is that I think there's a term, one question too many in philosophy, and I interpret that as something like, well, we've reached the end of our epistemological ability, which means like we've reached the end of what we can know about something, and then asking further questions about it is kind of like, why? Or asking questions that could never have an answer, like, does a tree actually make a sound? Well, it depends what you mean by actually and sound. And so I've always found those kind of rebuttals very convincing, I suppose. Uh, which I think is the great contribution of pragmatism to the philosophical mindset and the psychological mindset, which translates very much to liberalism. And then the next thing I wanted to bring up in these lectures is a way that James talks about materialism and matter and the world being made up of things like atoms. There's been, there's always been a kind of um, uh, a correlate here in my thinking in terms of understanding that, I mean, I, I am a materialist. I believe everything that exists has to most primarily exist in a physical form in that you can't have any abstraction without a physical form to make the abstractions. But I think that that is often seen as quite, uh, I believe, reductionist is the term. And, I, and there's a really great pragmatist part to all of this that I wanted to read out. So, James. Matter is indeed infinitely and incredibly refined. To anyone who has ever looked on the face of a dead child or parent, the mere fact that matter could have taken for a time that precious form ought to make matter sacred ever after. It makes no difference what the principle of life may be, material or immaterial. Matter, at any rate, cooperates, lends itself to all of life's purposes. That beloved incarnation was among matter's possibilities. And this is kind of jiving with the notion I've tried to think about and it's it's tricky it's hard to even explain exactly but i think a good way to conceive of it is layer of analysis 
there are wrong layers of analysis to think of things. In in this example that James just gave, we're talking about a child, right? And I think he talked, yeah, he's like a, a dead child or a parent who that had happened. Obviously, there's no huge emotional cost there and and deep feelings. It would be unproductive or uninteresting, I think, at the very least. Here, children, like anything else, are made out of matter. They're made out of carbon atoms and nitrogen and oxygen and a number of other elements. And they cohere in the way that they do because of uh, their genetic code and their natural selection, all of which are physical features in the biological schema of life. But, you know, as anyone who's a kind of well-adjusted normal person, it would be absurd to talk about children in our lives as at the level of their phys uh, physical atomic makeup. We talk about it at the layer of joy or frustration or anger or happiness or surprise or worry, kind of the more uh, emotional labels we give to our different psychological responses. So I think really, like most things in life, our appropriate responses to other people, for sure, are at the social and psychological level. Now, all that pragmatism notes is that it's much more useful to talk about these things at the social or psychological level. But you couldn't have a social or a psychological level without uh, a physical level. And that's kind of what I also was thinking in that previous example with the tree. We use a word like sound, sound or noise, that we kind of have this abstract notion of. But I guess part of pragmatism and the point I'm making is that everything abstract has to be downstream of an antecedent physical process. So sound is actually the label we give to the phenomenon of uh, vibration of physical objects. So all that sound is, is when you hear a guitar, you're hearing strings vibrate. And then if it's an electric guitar, it's amplified through electricity. Uh, if you hear a drum, what you're actually hearing is the skin of the drum vibrate. And so it's a physical object, the string or the drum, moving. That's what sound is. That's the physical process that gives rise to sound. And yet it would be pretty paltry and boring to talk about, I don't know, the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or, you know, whatever other bands you like at the level of physical vibrations. You could, but it wouldn't be interesting because really the point of music is to envelop our psyches and our and our what I would call our hearts. Again, that's a linguistic term. That what I mean by our hearts is uh, a pinnacle of our emotional attachment in a domain that seems to be around feeling the feelings that we call transcendence and love, which are particular psychological states which again, always will cash out at a physical level, but are not interesting to necessarily talk about like that. So I guess my point in this whole little section here is that the pragmatist has no qualms about talking at the level of the abstract or the level of the label. In fact, it's almost necessary for brevity's sake, but also still keeping in mind that that doesn't mean that these abstract levels aren't originally physical processes and it's just the wrong level of analysis for human psychological interest to talk about them at that and then the metaphysician would say well why is it uninteresting for human beings to talk about 
cultural and social processes at the physical level. And uh, again, I guess you could give a very long-winded answer around, well, our genes have placed in us certain brains that have particular synapses and wiring and neurotransmitters and electricity flowing through it that um, make it want certain things that kind of coalesce around some pinnacles like food and sex. And you can make the case that people like Jimmy Page or Paul McCartney, part of the reason they get good at music is because it's a really good mating strategy, which is an evolutionary, like you can make all these evolutionary cases for why probably we cash out our interest at the psychological level, not the physical level for our day-to-day lives. But I think also pragmatists would say, well, that's kind of missing the point. That's not, that's the one question too many. That's just the kind of creatures we are. There's a kind of, I guess, perceived simpleness maybe of the pragmatic approach to life. I guess when I've come across people who say they just, they believe that there's something deeper than just the physical or human life in the physical uh, or they want there to be something deeper or they think that there's something immaterial or spiritual or supernatural i mean it's a whole different topic but i i guess i'm just like well i i don't really share that intuition but also i think that hope is vain because there's no uh evidence for it (laughs) so the pragmatic answer will always be well how does it cash out in human life which is why I think pragmatism deserves its place in the pantheon of the reality-based community. And there was one other little section in this here I wanted to read out because it made me think a little bit about um, maybe William James was observing the beginning of what we might call uh, the New Age movement in his time. James. There are accordingly many materialists about us today who, ignoring altogether the future and practical aspects of the question, seeks to eliminate the odium attached to the word materialism, and even to eliminate the word itself, by showing that, if matter could give birth to all of these gains, why then, matter, functionally considered, is just as divine an entity as God, in fact, coalesces with God, is what you mean by God. Cease, these persons advise us, to use either of these terms with their outgrown opposition. Use a term free of the clerical connotations, on the one hand, of the suggestion of grossness, coarseness, ignobility, on the other, Talk of the primal mystery, of the unknowable energy, of the one and the only power, instead of saying either God or matter. (laughs) And that little section reminded me of like, well, maybe you've ever met someone who says, well, I don't believe in God, but uh, I believe in Mother Earth or Mother Gaia or something. Kind of like anointing with some sort of metaphysical spirituality, uh, nature, the physical process itself. And I was entertained by that because that makes me think of the new age movement and the kind of like shedding of any particular deity, but a kind of more or less attitude that nature itself is the divine. I think that that runs into the same problem because you're placing the physical process itself, the physical process of life on the planet earth into its own divinity, into its own platonic form which I think is just making a mistake in the other direction. And the other major topic I wanted to just address in this episode in pragmatism is pragmatism's relationship to the idea of truth. Because essentially, pragmatism eschews the capital T 
uh, notion of truth from Plato down. And pragmatism will say, well, what is true is whatever has the greatest practical consequences in the world. And that is a opening that I think can be placed a charge of relativism against pragmatism. But I think that one of the things that I have started to think about more is that part of what makes something true is our desire to find things that are useful in the world. So in that sense, the truth is useful. I'm thinking of an idea like part of why the theory of combustion is true is because it's the one that makes our cars go. It's the useful theory of movement, I suppose. You might have a a theory that like, well, maybe combustion, well, I mean, in a primitive sense, you can pray your car to move, or you could uh, have a theory that maybe if you put water in the the tank that will make it move you could have you could have a theory of water combustion you could have a theory of uh i don't know apple juice combustion but those won't work those won't make your car move uh however the theory of gasoline and oil being transferred into kinetic energy part of the reason it's true is because it's useful for us in our attempt to move around if we weren't interested in moving around our town or going on trips or traveling large distances in short amounts of time, we would have no real use for the theory of combustion. So it's not that theory of combustion wouldn't be true in a more abstract sense, but part of why we try to find the truth, I guess it's like a more of pursuit of truth, is because of its utility in our lives. That's a different way to think about it for me, even growing up, because I grew up under the notion of capital T truth. Things were true even if they never approached human life. And in one sense, I think that that is a fine way to think about truth. And in another sense, I think that it's kind of a useless way to think about truth. It depends on your needs and your motives. But James has this great little passage on true beliefs that I wanted to read out. So, James. The importance to human life of having true beliefs about matters of fact is a thing too notorious. We live in a world of realities that can be infinitely useful or infinitely harmful. Ideas that tell us which of them to expect count as the true ideas in all this primary sphere of verification, and the pursuit of such ideas is a primary human duty. The possession of truth, so far from being here an end in itself, is only a preliminary means towards other vital satisfactions. If I am lost in the woods and starved, and find what looks like a cow path, it is of the utmost importance that I should think of a human habitation at the end of it, for I do so and follow it, I save myself." The true thought is useful here because the house which is its object is useful. The practical value of true ideas is thus primarily derived from the practical importance of their objects to us. Their objects are, indeed, not important at all times. I may, on another occasion, have no use for the house, and then my idea of it, however verifiable, will be practically irrelevant and had better remain latent. Yet, since almost any object may someday become temporarily important, the advantage of having a general stock of extra truths, of ideas that shall be true of merely possible situations, is obvious. We store such extra truths away in our memories, and with the overflow we fill our books of reference. Whenever such an extra truth becomes practically relevant to one of our emergencies, it passes from cold storage to do work in the world and our belief in it grows active. You can say of it then either that it is useful because it is true, or that it is true because it is useful. Both these phrases mean exactly the same thing, namely that here is an idea that gets fulfilled and can be verified. 
True is the name for whatever idea starts the verification process. Useful is the name for its completed function in experience. True ideas would never have been singled out as such, would never have acquired a class name, least of all a name suggesting value, unless they had been useful from the outset in this way. And this jives with something I read all the way back to episode two of this podcast when we did On Liberty by John Stuart Mill. John Stuart Mill points out in freedom of opinion of wanting to find the truth and why that's important. John Stuart Mill himself, just as a reminder, was a famous utilitarian, and utilitarianism is, broadly speaking, the most ethical thing to do is the one that brings the best consequences for the most amount of people. And so he was often charged with this kind of anti-utilitarian take in On Liberty, where like he was defending truth as a principle, uh, that it's important regardless of the consequences. And one of the things that John Stuart Mill, I think, very pragmatically, although that would have been a anachronistic term to use at the time, was that part of the value of truth is its utility. It does allow us to do things that are fit to human purposes and objects based on our needs at any given time. Like I gave with the car example, the utility, it is a matter of fact that the theory of combustion is the correct one in terms of what would make a car go. And that actually has utility because we actually want our cars to go. And I think that that's a really interesting, not new and not something I'd never heard of before, but I hadn't really thought about truth in that light so much as that a major part of the value of the truth, as we kind of commonly conceive of it, is that it's really useful and has a lot of utility. And that passage James just made about cold storage and then using it again, that's kind of like what I, that made me think of like a trivia night. I have all of these random things that um, are floating around in the recesses of my memory that can be gained in a trivia night. And then you could say, well, what's the benefit of that? And well, trivia is fun. It's fun to be with your friends and drink a couple beers and eat some chicken wings and, and try to think of answers to questions. It's like a little rush every time a question gets asked or the up, uh, a question is upcoming. So the utility of a trivia night and knowing the truth of the questions that are latent and not really important and you can say are true, but they're in a sense dead truths in this kind of language. What's the practical purpose being solved? Me enjoying my life with my friends. And I think that's a perfectly acceptable utilitarian high consequence activity. <laughs> so that would be an interesting uh, thing I'm hoping to think about more is the connection between utility and truth as a, as a major reason why we call things true. And I think that that's actually probably a pretty good um, little introduction into pragmatism. Again, pragmatism, just the idea of like, what's the cash value of this belief? What does it do for me? What is, what is true about it is what brings the greatest amount of practical difference into my life in a positive manner. This is maybe, uh, maybe all of that is kind of like, yeah, duh, Luke, or common sense or something like that to you, dear listener. But pragmatism certainly arose in opposition to the dominant strand in Western philosophy, which came all the way from Plato, which was metaphysics, the idea that things exist in a perfect state outside of time and space that all of everything else is trying to become. And then Christianity obviously made its own metaphysics of love and redemption and sin and forgiveness. All of these words capitalized in a kind of platonic sense. And uh, why I'm tying pragmatism philosophically into the uh, 
liberal soul ethos and then this podcast is that it's a kind of radically reality-based philosophy. It's so reality-based, it doesn't even deny the supernatural or the metaphysical. It just thinks it's irrelevant. Irrelevant and even if it existed, it doesn't exist in a way that has any practical difference in our lives, so it doesn't matter. It can obviously have a practical difference in that if you believe in your your real life behavior can change based on what you believe in. And that's an actually interesting thing that James talked about, about like, well, if people's lives are better from believing in a religion, then that's probably part of its truth. And I think that there's a lot to be said in that vein of the psychological relationship and inner experience relationship to what we call religion and spirituality. I'm certainly not trying to denigrate those things. I'm just saying that I think that it's a different way to think about what we mean about religion and truth. Because if you insist that heaven is a literal place you go to after you die in the same way that I'm sitting in a literal house right now or that two blocks from here there is a literal park, well, then you're bringing it back into the physical realm or at least you're using language that connotes things that are sensible but there's no evidence for and then you can't make sensible arguments for them. And I think what's interesting about pragmatism is just like okay well what changes <laughs> what changes in the world if you think these things not not even so much with religion but which is bad philosophical questions pragmatism i think eviscerates by shrugging its shoulders at the people who really need those deep metaphysical questions answered it says uh, well if you mean by go around the squirrel northeast southwest back to north yes if you mean going around the squirrel like his back and his sides, then no. Which do you mean? And that makes me, reminds me of the deepest point of why I think pragmatism and liberalism are related is that it radically shifts the nature of the questions and the decision-making, the behavior back onto people. It's not God. It's not the nation. It's not history. It's not, it's not some sort of like immaterial march it's back into the decision-making realm of individual human beings. Okay, what do you mean by does the tree make a sound in the forest if no one's there to hear it? Because there is no free-floating tree-forest sound here. Those words don't exist other than in the way that we mean them to in any given context. And they can obviously mean slightly different things in slightly different contexts. So the real question is, what do you mean by that? And that onus giving back, that kind of shifting the responsibility back onto a person, I think is what makes the open society. It, it's, a, it's a sense of having to have some, even though this is such a buzzwordy word, ownership of our own presence in the world. What do we mean by our questions? And I think that that actually psychologically brings about more dialectic, which allows for more emergence, if you go back to my Adam Gopnik episodes, I think. Pragmatism shifts questions back to people in a way that makes them have to think about how to refine, which then allows for a new particular way of thinking or asking a question, which leads to more emergence, which leads to more growth, which then leads to more problems, which then starts the process all over again. But in the meantime, you've developed. I think that's a really good way to think about human psychological and learning development. And so I wanted to give a little 
introduction to pragmatism in this episode that I probably, again, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in. And I'm always kind of like conscious of the fact that maybe one day someone will listen to this who's like an expert in one of these fields and will just think I've done such a shitty job of <laughs> explicating these ideas. And, and that's okay. I'm uh, doing my best. But I will say that if you are in any way interested in psychology and kind of more or less modern philosophy, this is obviously it's like about 100, 115 years ago where James was kind of prolific, but pragmatism is is a relatively modern philosophy. And William James is one of the most interesting people I've ever read. The principles of psychology, the will to believe, varieties of religious experience, pragmatism. He's got all of just this great writing. I mean, if you read Principles of Psychology, he's just got chapters on things like habit and attention and perception and what we mean by these things. And I, it's just so interesting. And I've, I feel like I've learned so much from him. So part of this is just, to me, William James is very much one of the giants on whom shoulders we can stand on to learn more about ourselves. And I think that that's a really beautiful element of being alive, discovering other people in history who've contributed greatly to the present day and I can learn from. So I want to say, again, a big thank you to everyone who listens to The Liberal Soul. You can find this podcast on all the major podcasting apps. If you do listen on Apple Podcasts, I'd really appreciate a rating and or review. Um, you can tell your friends. You can send me an email, theliberalsoul87 at gmail.com. You can find it on Facebook. You can also follow on Twitter at liberalsoul87. And actually, if any of you ever want to be a guest on The Liberal Soul to talk about your favorite thing, send me an email and uh, we can set it up. No problem. That's part of the goal. And so I want to say thank you, William James. Thank you for everyone who listens to this podcast. You found The Liberal Soul. Thank you.